Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Hello there. William McCormick is our guest today. He is an assistant professor of political science at St. Louis University, and his new book is The Christian Structure of Politics on the De Regno of Thomas Aquinas. That is our topic today. Welcome, Professor McCormick. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. Well, uh, let me ask you why. Among the centuries of commentary on Christianity, and, and uh, in, in this world, you find Aquinas's study, this particular study, singularly valuable, or, or at least um, uh, a better option than many other books that might have served uh, to, to uh, just a, a, general, a general comment on the overall value of this particular study, and maybe why it's not as famous as, as others. Those are excellent questions. Of course, when you're thinking of Thomas Aquinas's political thought, you naturally think of the questions on law from the Summa Theologiae. You might think about his commentaries of Aristotle's ethics and politics. And there are other places to look, of course, uh, including his uh, commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard. But Aquinas's De Regno is fascinating in part because it pushes us to move a bit beyond what we think we know about Aquinas. It pushes us to move a bit beyond what we think and understand by Aquinas's politics. This work is amazing because it's a, a mirror of princes. So it's offering a fairly capacious, robust account of politics. Uh, the questions on law are very focused on law, obviously. His commentaries on Aristotle, which are incomplete, um, focus on this or that part of Aristotle's teaching. They're all very valuable, but De Regno is incredible. It's unique because he is addressing a royal reader who's politically active, politically engaged, and offering him kind of a view of politics from the ground up, from the very first question of what is justice, what does it mean to be a political community? Yep. And I think that's invaluable for trying to make sense of what Aquinas takes to be the point of politics. Uh, a, l- a little autobiographical question. When did you first encounter the book? Was it during your graduate school training? Was it on a syllabus? Or did you end up having uh, digging on your own and, and, and coming onto the book? It's a great question. It's a neglected work. It's not on many syllabi. And so I, I in fact, stumbled into it when I was doing a, a reading year in grad school between courses as I was putting together my dissertation proposal. And uh, it, yeah, it's it's not read very often because people don't always know what to do with it. Of course, there was a lot of controversy. There has been controversy about which parts were written by Aquinas. So we do know that part that's parts of the latter 
excuse me, the latter parts of the book were written by a student of his, Ptolemy of Lucca, but we feel pretty good about the parts that, that are written by Aquinas and they're, they're rather different. But yeah, it's a, it's a neglected work. It certainly doesn't deserve to be that. And I got into it because in grad school, I was reading Strauss, I was reading Vogelin, you know, I was reading Plato and all these great political thinkers who offer a very challenging encounter between faith and reason, uh, between political life and, and the spiritual transcendent ends of the human person. And this is a work where Aquinas is grappling with those same questions. So it's hard-hitting stuff. We're, we're, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm digging. I, I didn't write this down in my notes, but now I'm even more curious. <laughs> were your advisors in graduate school familiar with the work or were you in the room in your in your oral defense? You were the expert on this particular text, at least. <laughs> That's right. A great advantage of studying Dorenio is you don't uh, often encounter people who know more about it than than you do. Uh, my advisor, Jay Budzhevsky at the University of Texas, certainly knew the work certainly knew it and had uh, taught it and studied it a bit, but obviously not at great length because it's not a focus of Aquinas studies. And so one of my tasks in, in this book is simply to, you know, bring a, create an encounter between historians of political thought, theologians, political scientists, and this undeservedly neglected work. Uh, just, just by the way, Jay was on the podcast just a few weeks ago. So that's right. That's uh, right. Your his student is following in his footsteps. <laughs> Doing my Very best. Good. Now, uh, the occasion for the book. Why did Aquinas write it? Was there an immediate occasion, a, a historical reason uh, for him to take up this topic? Yeah, we think that we think that he wrote it for the uh, Cypriot crusader king, I should say the Frankish crusader king on Cyprus, to sort of curry favor uh, with the king such that the Dominicans could establish a launching pad on Cyprus toward the Levant, toward the Holy Land. It's not completely clear who, which king that would have been. And as far as we know, it never made it to the king. Uh, So it's striking because on the one hand, Aquinas is this great theorist of well, and systematician of everything he studies. On the other hand, the the rhetorical genre, the nature of the work suggests that it was very much written for someone like this Cypriot crusader king. Yeah. Uh, it is addressed to somebody who's engaged in the hard work of politics. And Aquinas really emphasizes the nobility and difficulty of politics. So and, he's and, not... Oh, please. Yeah, and at this time, uh, Cyprus is so politically aligned with France. Is that right? At least parts of Cyprus were ruled by these sort of comital uh, lords, mostly from Western France, as I'm sure you know, uh, who were sort of adventurers and opportunists coming into the Holy Land area to seize uh, territory as part of the Crusades. And you can imagine all of the difficulties and ambiguities involved in that kind of an occasion. So you've these people are coming to the Holy Land and taking the land in the name of Christianity, often for their own personal advancement. So the questions of, and in very precarious situations, of course, where it seems advised to be perhaps tyrannical or unjust in the name of a greater glory. It, so, it actually, you know, you know that, that, that's important, right? We're not talking about uh, kingship in sort of a, a, a stable safe, secure, long-standing location, right? <laughs> this is 
this is, as you said, it's it's precarious and and conditions are shifting, and that that invites tyranny, right? Emergency powers, uh, right? So, uh, but Aquinas goes back to the beginning, really, really the basis of of things, uh, and and you start with that. According to Aquinas, where, from where or what, does the impulse toward political organization originate? Why do people organize politically? It's fascinating because there are obviously at least two answers to this question. Obviously, by 2022, we've got a million. Uh, But, you know, two basic approaches to this question would be to say, well, the human person has certain deficiencies. We can't protect ourselves. We can't defend our, our young the way other animals can. We don't have claws. You know, we're not large, powerful animals. And Aquinas does start there. He does emphasize uh, that human people, human persons need other people because of our deficiencies. By the end of the work, he's emphasized the ways that political community serves excellence. Mm-hmm. And he does emphasize by the end that Aristotle's point that, that the community is political community is there not just to address, to remedy these deficiencies, but to secure our actualization as persons. And it's a long, slow road. It's a long, slow road. And uh, one of the, again, one of the surprising foci of the book, as you said, is the precarity of politics. And what's so fascinating about tyranny is that it underscores something that's quite common in all political regimes, which is that you might think that because you have an, a long established, powerful regime, that you somehow are permanent or everlasting or eternal. Uh, And in fact, all political regimes fall. All of them fade away. And tyranny, in many ways, it's a spiritual condition. It's the illusion that you have the kind of control over political life to secure eternal rule, to secure eternal power. And Aquinas says, nope, that's God. (laughs) Nobody else has that kind of power. Uh, So that's what's, in a way, this work seems like it's addressed to a very limited, specific audience, tyrants, and, you know, as we said, people living in very precarious regimes, almost failed states. But in fact, it, it underlines conditions common to all regimes, to all countries. Uh, just just uh, brings up, this wasn't in my notes, but a, a side question uh, that raises, that is raised here, a biographical question about Aquinas. Did he witness a lot of people heading off to the Crusades personally, do you know? I can't answer that question. I, I mean, he certainly would have known some people who'd been involved, I think, but I, I don't know that, that answer. Uh, his family in Naples was quite powerful and connected to the emperors. So he was familiar with with politically active people, and he was familiar with the kind of risk-taking they were willing to take and the kind of illusions of power and control. You know, Aquinas himself joined the Dominicans, which was a fledgling order at the time, and that might have seemed a risky move to other people, but he knew that God was with, obviously, with the order of preachers. Uh, so he was he was not a politically naive. Uh, Aquinas turns quickly to the distinction between the, the liber, freemen, and, and the servus, you know, the slaves. What what does he do with that distinction? Or, or maybe generally, what, what is his comment? What does he say about slavery? Right. It's a great question, and it's really fraught 
Um, and at the end of the day, the question of the Liber is the question of a regime that can actualize the full potential of the human person. And uh, pr- people are never free on their road. Well, that might be too strong. Uh, but we are social and political animals. So we need community to be fully actualized as free. And of course, as you know, his notion of freedom is not going to be primarily negative as it would be for many people today, but primarily, although he's aware of those that necessity, because we want to be free from hunger, uh, free from oppression. But even more so to be free is to be fully actualized toward and and oriented toward the ends of the human person. Uh, So freedom is always in the service of excellence, of goodness, uh, and finally, holiness. And and, uh, so that's the Liber. What what about the, the servus, the slave? What is the condition of of the slave to Aquinas? Right. So he's, you know, he is hearkening to a whole tradition going back to Aristotle and beyond about the idea of a natural slave, which, of course, becomes very important in later centuries, particularly with the school of Salamanca and the question over the relationship between inhabitants of the New World in the old world, but then, of course, the slavery trade with Africa. He doesn't wade into those waters, and it's one of many points in the book where you wonder how much has he really sat with Aristotle. Uh, But it's at least clear from this work that the Servus is somebody who does not have uh, the capacities, uh, full capacities of a human person. Uh, Perhaps he has in mind something like Aristotle's natural slave, but he also definitely has in mind the injustice committed against people by tyrannical regimes, uh, whereby they cannot fully flourish. Um, and the state, the state of a of a servus is is pitiable. It's it's unjust and it's a, a sin against God because human beings are made are made to fulfill their ends. And so he, for him, it's a very fraught, very important issue. Um, and again, it's not just a negative concern, uh, again, even though negative liberty has its has its value, but also the positive freedom is is key. Uh, he turns to the the military, right? A king's army. Uh, what does he say about military forces in a society? It's really fascinating, and I suspect there are people who know more about medieval war uh, or even modern warfare who would benefit quite a bit, you know, would have a lot to say and a lot to do with what he's uh, working with. There's a concern throughout the book that that conquest becomes an end of itself. You know, he discusses what the perfect self-sufficient community looks like. And he discusses, along with Aristotle or somebody like that, the city or the polis or the the civitas as the perfectly self-sufficient community. But then he suggested, of course, something like a a provincia, a a province or an empire could be more could be more apt. Uh, But of course, the question becomes, why are those more self-sufficient? Why are those more complete? And the answer seems to be, at least in part, well, they can defend themselves against other communities. And that's a little troubling because uh, <laughs> that's sort of accidental to the nature of a community. Uh, if other community, if other political communities are attacking them, then of course you have to get into the roots of that kind of conflict, which 
inevitably for Aquinas, it's going to be the fall. It's going to be sin. Um, so, of course, he is all he's more than happy to argue that self-defense, for instance, is more than just. And there is such a thing as a just war for Aquinas. But yes, this notion of uh, society oriented around mi- the military uh, of, of conflict and empire, there's a quiet concern in this book that that is actually a distraction from what it means to be a self-sufficient community. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. He, he notes that there are many forms that a, quote, just regime may take. Uh, he, he, does, he does lean toward a monarchy, right? But he's, he's rather loose in not, not laying down too strict the conditions for a just regime, correct? That's correct. He is writing to a monarch, so it it's just sort of obvious that he would focus on monarchy. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's, it's worth noting that, of course, since World War II, uh, democracy has been basically the only acceptable regime form in our time. Uh, the most undemocratic countries in the world claim the label, the mantle. Uh, but for much of human history, and certainly in Aquinas' time, monarchy was the preeminent regime form. And it took many shapes and forms. And so Aquinas is assuming, is happy to sort of go along with that ideology. And he has arguments for why actually monarchy can be quite good. Uh, But he notes throughout the book that, uh, you know, the corruption of the best is the worst and Mm. tyranny is quite common. In fact, one of the most interesting claims in the book is that we need to distinguish between mild tyranny and an excess of tyranny because mild, (laughs) mild tyranny is rather common. And it might not be reason to upend a regime, but obviously excessive mm-hmm. tyranny. And excessive tyranny is a very serious matter. So you're right. You're right. He he does take monarchy to be the best regime form, but he does believe that there are a range of legitimate regime forms. And the question is, how just are they and how ha, sort of how possible or realistic is it to instantiate a regime form in a given regime? Uh, he, he does, as you as you implied, he spends a lot of time talking about tyranny, drawing distinctions such as the one you just draw. What are the ingredients of of tyranny in in his eyes? What makes what makes a regime? Give us a few examples uh, that he might have seen that would make a regime tyrannical. Yeah, I mean, I think he always has in mind uh, the <laughs> France, the French kingdom, which of course is one of the preeminent preeminent examples of the the nation state, the early nation state. And what's fascinating about France for him is he thinks that historically France has been a place which has always given pride of place to religion. Uh, But of course, the French kings early on, and of course, I'm speaking a bit generally, uh, a little simplistically, uh, 
but the French kings had a fraught relationship with with Rome and with the notion of a universal church, right? The French wanted to assert themselves vis-a-vis what you might call Christendom, which was sort of notionally ruled by the empire and by the papacy. And it's an interesting example he returns to a few times because it seems that the French kings are interested in their private interest. And that's, that's an important distinction for tyranny. Of course, we all have personal goods. You know, I need to eat something. You know, you need food and water. That's fine. But a private one, a private good would be something that would be to the exclusion of others and often more than just to the exclusion, but to the detriment. And so it's you can argue that at different points in history that the French monarchy is, you know, sort of derogating from the from the good of the common good of Christendom, whatever Christendom means. Uh, But he's very interested. He gives many examples of tyrants who are interested in their private good uh, rather than the common good. And that's the slippage from just king kingship to tyranny. I, I, you know, forgive my ignorance on on this, but is Naples an independent kingdom during Aquinas's lifetime? So you're, I'm not a historian, so people are going to correct me. I believe at this point, it's part of the kingdom of uh, two Sicilies, but I could be wrong. Uh, but it's, it's con- yeah, it's connected to the, uh, the empire. And so he's aware, you know, Italy, one thing that makes Aquinas fascinatingly similar to Machiavelli is they're both a, very aware of the fractured, divided nature of the Italian peninsula. There is no Italy. There, there, it's just this sort of uh, war zone of many different competing authorities, of course, none of which is strong enough to unify it. And yeah, so Aquinas is, and of course, of course, many of these, uh, these chunks, these territories of Italy are ruled by families that are basically glorified warlords. And so the problem of conquest, the problem of justice, the problem of private interest is never far ever far from his mind. What are Aquinas's judgments of the Hebrew kings and judges and the Roman emperors? That's a great question. There's a lot, there are a lot of examples he takes. He, he in, it's much clearer in the Summa uh, than in, than in the questions on law than in, in this work. But, you know, in general, he thinks the Hebrew regime was wonderful because it was a mixed regime. Uh, so quite good, quite good. Uh, he also tends to think, and he, he mentions this here and in the Summa. But, but I'm the, sorry, but by mixed regime, you mean you had kings and judges. Is that right? That you have different different parts of, of monarchy and aristocracy with the inclusion of the people. So like Aristotle, he's going to say that is a, a very good second best. It's a very practical alternative to monarchy. Because it's so moderating, because it balances different parts of a of a regime, he but he also he also like uh, in the Summa and here uh, praises the the tendency of the, the the ancient Israel to avoid monarchy uh, until of course it doesn't, um, and that's a very that's a very ambiguous legacy that Francis Oakley treats really well in his trilogy. Uh, which I always forget what it's called, but it's the wonderful trilogy of uh, the origins of Western political thought. Uh, yeah, he Aquinas. There are lots of subtle 
anti-monarchical aspects to <laughs> moments in Dorenio. In, in terms of the Roman emperors, you know, his concern with, with Rome, he, he doesn't wade into the waters of sort of a preparatio evangelica. You know, as far as I can recall, he doesn't say, oh, it's wonderful that Rome united Christendom what became Christendom and gave it that space. But the fascinating thing for him about Rome, or one of the fascinating things, is that, you know, the ancient Romans overthrew their kings because the kings had become tyrants. But what turns out to have happened in the Roman Republic is that the Romans became too complacent uh, with their Republican leaders. And, uh, you know, all these Republican leaders became uh, tyrannical. Uh, so they were avoiding monarchy. The Romans avoided monarchy to avoid tyranny. Uh, but that clearly didn't work, at least <laughs> at least according to Aquinas, that the Roman Empire in various ways was a lapse into tyranny itself. And so there's this fascinating thread in, in the work that we might wish to avoid monarchy to avoid tyranny. But any regime form can eventually lapse into tyranny. Um, whether that's because aristocracy becomes oligarchy and eventually one person centralizes power. Um, but also more broadly, tyranny, generally speaking, that just means injustice, right? And any regime form can become unjust. Um, so, yeah, one of his main lessons about, I just said that his treatment of Israel, ancient Israel, tends to be kind of anti-monarchical. But his treatment of Rome is, seems to push in a different direction. So, again, it's kind of a fascinating um, parallel with Machiavelli. There's a lot of differences between them, but it's fascinating that, that Aquinas has some general principles and then says, well, they play out differently in different places, in different times. When we do have a regime slipping into tyranny, in what way should a people seek to depose the tyrants? What should they do with them? That's a great question. He, in, in Dorenio, Aquinas' first suggestion is that if the king was, or the ruler was installed by a higher authority, such as the Pope, uh, the appeal be made to that higher authority. Um, and of course, we're talking Europe as a patchwork of, of political relationships where it's, it's not unusual to have a kind of hierarchy like that. That seems much less helpful in the nation state system uh, where all nation states are more or less sovereign. Uh, you could appeal to the United Nations or, or something like that, I suppose. Uh, but after that, it gets quite ambiguous. It gets quite ambiguous. And there's a lot of controversy as to Aquinas's uh, uh, take on tyrannicide or deposing mm -hmm. rulers. Aquinas, like many uh, great thinkers, is quite, uh, <laughs> quite discreet or quite ambiguous about that, because at the end of the day, it takes a tremendous amount of prudence to know how to proceed. Uh, just like we see in the Declaration of Independence for the United States, you don't overthrow a government for light and transient, reason, transient reasons. And we can disagree about what that means, and we can disagree with how to apply it. He encourages, he encourages, I think the most interesting thing he says is he, he encourages the subjects to pray, to pray to God. Um, which is, seems somewhat similar to Locke's appeal to reason, at least lexically. And the, the prayer thing, I, I think part of what I think he's trying to do there is to suggest that if, ask where does tyranny come from? 
Um, does it come from kind of a corrupt culture, a vicious, sinful culture? And in that case, the people should pray, should pray for relief, should pray for guidance, for discernment. But they also probably need to ask themselves, what kind of conversion does our community need uh, to avoid future tyranny? And that's that's a really powerful, you know, obviously we have a lot of, there's a lot of critique of the phrase thoughts and prayers. I don't think Aquinas is saying thoughts and prayers in any kind of glib way. Uh, prayer is meant to guide action. A prayer is meant to reorient us toward practical goods. It does more than that, but it does do that. Am I right in that the the virtue, the trait that Aquinas singles out in a king that preserves him from slipping into tyranny isn't faith, but magnanimity? Is that correct? Well, that's my favorite virtue, so I'm happy to go along with that. <laughs> it's the, the political virtue, that's the highest political virtue for a king, magnanimity. Right. You know, like Aristotle, Aquinas, you could argue for justice or for magnanimity as the greatest uh, sort of political virtue. But then there's no question that justice has uh, yeah, tremendous influence in this account. But magnanimity is absolutely crucial here. Aquinas absolutely wishes for the king to undertake great actions and in the service of God. So what's fascinating, what's part of what's so important about magnanimity is its intimate connection with humility. That, of course, we expect politically uh, engaged persons, we expect rulers to be uh, vain or proud. And Aquinas wants to convert that vanity and pride to something holier. Because you can't avoid uh, the hard work of politics. You cannot avoid uh, political life. Uh, you can't just run away from it. And say, well, of course, individual people can if they're called, but somebody needs their rule. Um, and so magnanimity and humility are part, of how, are, are part of how rulers turn their rule toward the good and hopefully convert that vanity and pride towards serving God as opposed to just serving themselves. Yeah. Uh, you, you, in, in chapter four, you turn to something called the politics of revelation. Uh, how does that work? Last question. Uh, how does that work? And, and maybe, maybe Moses as, as, uh, as an important figure in that. Oh, Moses is a key, key figure in this work because, and it, again, it's such a fun contrast with Machiavelli's prince. Because in the prince, Moses is this schemer you know, who basically invents uh, a revealed code by a political code that he uses to control the people. Uh, for Aquinas, Moses is such a powerful prince, uh, such a powerful example of a leader because he follows God's wisdom. God creates, God appoints the ends of created things. And it's the point, it's the purpose of politics to steward created things particularly humans, obviously, toward those ends. And Aquinas says, even when political rulers found a city, so you think of these great examples like Romulus and Remus or Moses, uh, great lawgivers, even then they are not creating something out of nothing. They are organizing, as it were, stewarding uh, what God has already created. So the politics of Revelation can mean many things, but one of the things it means is that uh, human beings have these ends appointed by God, 
And it's the purpose of politics to lead humans, to conduct humans toward those ends, not create new ones um, or to pretend that there are no ends at all. And there's a, a there, and there's a relationship there between reason and revelation that really, really wise people like Aristotle, Cicero, Plato, Socrates, they, they have really profound uh, reflection on the purpose of human life and life in common. Uh, but revelation is there to remind us of what can often uh, be obscure or unknown to reason. And of course, this, the beatitude, uh, final happiness, is not something that we can know by reason. So that's also the politics of revelation. Very good. The book is The Christian Structure of Politics on the Derenio of Thomas Aquinas. Professor McCormick, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.